The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Now to me, one of the most interesting things about Christianity is that the center of the faith has always been light on its feet. It's always been on the move. I mean, in a lot of ways, you could say that the Christian movement began moments after Jesus was resurrected and as, as he commissions his disciples out there in this little chunk of real estate on the Mediterranean. And from there, it expands around that real estate, around the Mediterranean, into North Africa and into Europe. Then it centralizes in Europe for a while. Then it centralizes in the Americas for a while. And now we're seeing a transition where the gospel is taking root and, and really becoming centralized in other parts of the world, far east, what's called the 1040 window. In parts of Africa and Southeast Asia, the Holy Spirit is moving and the gospel is taking root in ways that we have never seen in world history. And so it's fascinating to me that Christianity functions like that. That Christianity is a faith that is always on the move. A faith light on its feet. Now, what is that attributable to? What makes Christianity a faith that moves like that? Now, there's a lot of things that we could say, but at its core, I think we could say this. I don't have it on the screen. The Christian God is a sending God. The Christian God is ascending God. And that's what we'll consider tonight from John chapter 17, how the Christian God is ascending, uh, pouring out, pouring forth kind of God. Now, of the stories written about Jesus, none highlight God's sending nature like the gospel of John. The New Testament opens with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those gospels, essentially biographies of Jesus, where different authors are sort of offering up different aspects of Jesus' work and ministry. The Gospel of John is really different from the other Gospels in that it really zeroes on who exactly Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are very intent on telling us all the things that Jesus has done, but the Gospel of John is very much about who Jesus is. John really wants to point us kind of through what Jesus does to who Jesus is in order that we would see who Jesus is and believe. That's what John tells us in John chapter 20. I'm writing these things that you would see Jesus in his glory, see Jesus in his majesty and his might, and you would believe in him. Now tonight in the the section, John 17, that Hannah read, this is where Jesus concludes a farewell address to his disciples right before he steps into his death, right before he embraces the cross what he calls this moment of glorification. And in, the, in this moment, at the end of this farewell address, he, he offers up what's called the high priestly prayer. And it gives us some insight into Jesus' heart, both for his father, his obedience to the father, his desire to fulfill what the father has sent him to do, but also his heart for his disciples. Now, if you've ever read, like, uh, I don't know who your favorite historical figure might be, Teddy Roosevelt, for instance. A, a couple of years ago, I read these letters to his children. And it was just absolutely fascinating to me to read Teddy Roosevelt, you know, who's like, like a paragon of manliness, like riding mooses through rivers and just Teddy Roosevelt stuff, like riding tenderly to his children. It was sort of a, an, an amazing insight into the kind of guy that he was. In a similar way, as we read the high priestly prayer, we're given a bit of a kind of a, a, a backdoor peek into Jesus' heart, into who Jesus is and how he feels about his disciples. One of the themes characterizing this prayer is that he wants to see the Father glorified in the completion of the task that he's been given. Let's look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is to say, when Jesus had finished this farewell address to his disciples that begins back in chapter 14, Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. 
In other words, the, 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 the task of embracing the cross is upon us. The hour has come. It's time for me to do this. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus prays as he's about to embrace the shame of the cross and the brutality of the cross. He prays that God would glorify himself, that God would glorify Jesus in that moment and and thereby glorify himself knowing that God will be glorified in Jesus' glory. And Jesus says, this is what you sent me to do. You sent me to offer my life on a cross. You sent me to enter into death in order that my people would not have to do that, in order that I could grant eternal life to my people. That, that is the reason that I was sent. And Jesus says, eternal life is this, verse three. Eternal life is this, knowing God, the one true God, Jesus was sent to deal with the obstacles that prevent us from knowing and having access to the Heavenly Father. Jesus was sent so that the Father and us can be restored. The good news of the gospel is that God looks down on us in our sin and our rebellion. He sees our darkness and he sees the rebellion that we choose. And he sends Jesus to die a death that we deserve in order that that sin could be addressed on the shoulders of Jesus and we could be welcomed into life with God forever and ever and ever. To, to feast for endless days and to see and enjoy God's face for endless days. That, that is why God sent Jesus to us. And if you're tracking with the, with the story of the Bible like at all up to this point, this move that the Father makes in sending Jesus actually shouldn't really surprise us at all because it seems to be totally consistent with his character, like, like totally consistent with the stuff that he's done up to this point in the scripture. Uh, now, now, last weekend, uh, we took a group of boys to uh, Camp McCall just up the road. Anybody familiar with Camp McCall? Camp McCall is a Baptist boys camp that's been going since like 1960, and it was, uh, we, I took Jude and Zach, one of our pastors, took his son Gabe, took a couple of boys up there, Cole Riddle is a former staffer at Camp McCall. Uh, we took these boys up to camp to, j- just to spend some time with them, to, you know, to, to learn about missions and to, to, to learn and you know, hear the Bible preached on and that sort of thing. It was a great experience. But the highlight of the trip has to be at campfire on Friday night. Right? So campfire is a thing that all of the boys do you know, one evening that they're at camp. And uh, thanks to Cole, who had a little bit of inside information, he slipped the name Zach Gilliam to some of the staffers because at Friday night at camp, they always invite a particular person to kind of come up in front of the whole crew and to participate in some games and to be welcomed into the tribe. And the goal is to never be that person because it's just full on, just heaping shame and embarrassment on whoever volunteers to come forward. Just for like 20 minutes, they're just embarrassing the heck out of this person. And so Cole, he called me on Thursday to tell me he was doing this. He said, Zach Gilliam is the name that they're going to call and invite forward. I was like, yes, I love that this is about to happen. So they, they invite Zach forward and they do this little thing where you have to like perform these mental and physical tasks in order to be welcomed into the tribe. So at one point you have, uh, I can't even remember all the things that they, they did yet. At one point you have to, you stand up and you kind of point knives at chief and you, and you kind of hold the, the knives up and then whatever chief does, you have to kind of repeat. They sit up and stand up, sit down, stand up a couple of times. And then at, at one of these kind of sit up and uh, 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 stand up and, and sit down moments, one of the staffers kind of sneaks up behind Zach and gets a wet sponge, like one of those big car washing sponge 
things and puts it on the stump where Zach is sitting. And of course, the campers have Zach sit down and he sits on this wet sponge and eight-year-old boys lose their junk and it's absolutely hilarious. And I tell you, nobody was loving it more than Gabe Gilliam. Gabe is Zach's sons. And one of the best parts about this was after Zach was initiated into the tribe, they gave him a new name, which I hope that you mention several times tonight, Soggy Bridges. You are now known as Soggy Bridges. For the rest of the weekend, the boys were thrilled to refer to Zach as Soggy Bridges. Now, one of my favorite parts about this was after all of this was happening and Gabe was just absolutely loving it, I said to Gabe, Gabe, what do you think your mom is going to say when you go home and tell your dad, tell her that her, your, your dad's new name is Soggy Bridges? And he put his hands on his hips and he said, wow, Gabe, that's really neat. And what blew me away about it was it was a, it was a pitch-perfect impression of Sarah. Now, the whole reason I tell you that story is, one, because I couldn't miss the opportunity to tell the church to refer to Zach as Soggy Bridges. And two, to talk about sometimes, like in the instance of Gabe, being able to perfectly, you know, do an impression of Sarah, sometimes we sort of pick up on the traits or the characteristics of a person and can anticipate the things that they're going to say and the moves that they're going to make, right? Now, we get, when we get to the point in John chapter 17 where Jesus sort of peels back the curtain and lets us see what the Father has been up to, we see exactly what we expect to see, that this creator God, this calling and sending and commissioning God, this God who created Adam and commissioned him to the garden, this God who created Eve and commissioned her to fulfill this task with Adam. The same God who called Abraham and sent him out of the land of Ur to the promised land. The same God who calls Moses and sends Moses to a task. The same God who calls Jeremiah and Isaiah and sends them. The same God who calls Jonah and sends him. The same God who calls Obadiah and sends him. When we get to John 17 and Jesus says, the Father has sent me, we sort of come to the conclusion like, of course, of course he has. Of course this is what the Father has done. Of course, he's seen us, and he has sent someone to do something about it. He sent Jesus, because the Christian God is ascending God. Verse 4, Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I've, I've done what you have called me to do, Heavenly Father, and I have brought glory to your name. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus prays, I have glorified you through my obedience. Now I pray as I step into my death and my resurrection and my exaltation that you would return me to the glory that I had with you before the ages began. Verse five, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then Jesus' prayer shifts from his obedience to the Father, shifts to his disciples in verse six. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. In other words, Jesus says, you have given me followers, and I have preserved them. They have believed that you sent me. They have kept your word. Verse 9. Now I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those that you have entrusted to me, my disciples. He knows he's getting ready to go to physically return to the Father and leave his disciples, and he's praying that the Lord would sustain and protect and care for his disciples. Verse 11, 
I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. I'm leaving them. I'm going to be with you. I pray that you would keep them. Verse 12. Or verse 11, rather. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Speaking of Judas, his betrayal being a part of God's plan all along. Verse 13, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says, while I was with them, I kept them, except for Judas, But now that I'm leaving, I'm asking you, Father, to guard them, to preserve them. They, like me, are otherworldly. And like me, they will be received by some and rejected by others. Both the world and the evil one will be at odds with them. They They will be like a splinter, and the antibodies of the world will reject them. And here we see Jesus' heart for his disciples. And you think about all of the interactions that Jesus had with these guys. Like, I'm sure sure that the disciples were extremely sad to, to know that Jesus was preparing to leave them. But I think this passage gives us some insight into seeing Jesus' own heart after spending these years with these disciples, like Jesus leaving them. I'm sure that Jesus was torn up emotionally about this too, though he knew what God's purposes in this were. Verses 16 and 17, he says, you've gathered them up, you've guarded them, you've collected and protected them. They've been set apart by the truth of the gospel. But there's threats. There's threats outside and threats inside. The world, verse 14, hates them. They'll reject them like a host rejecting a transplant. He prays for protection against the evil one. But he also prays for unity in verse 11. Recognizes that there's threats inside the house as well. But then watch this. This is the money portion for us tonight in verse 18. Watch what Jesus says. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Just as God sends Jesus. John 1, John 3.16, John 17.3. Jesus sends his disciples into the world. Just as you have sent me, so I send them. He calls his disciples out of the world. He gives them new names, new identities. They're sanctified, consecrated by the truth, results in animosity from the world. But then Jesus, just as he was sent by the Father, sends his disciples back into the world because the Christian God is a sending God. Now, if you fast forward to chapter 20, I'll have this on the screen. This is after the events of Jesus' death, resurrection. He meets with with his disciples and watch what Jesus says. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Watch this. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so begins the Christian movement. Isn't that awesome? Just think about that that scene. This is the first time that Jesus has appeared after his death. And it says that they are locked behind 
closed doors for fear of persecution, fear that they, what, they, what they thought was true about Jesus was not true. And then, bam, Jesus appears, and it says they were glad to see the Lord. And it's like, you bet your sweet bippy they were glad to see the Lord at that moment. And Jesus says, peace be with you twice. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That idea of God breathing and giving life sounds familiar. It's because it's exactly what we see happen in Genesis 1, when God gathers up the dust, breathes into it, and creates Adam and Eve. We see that sort of theme replayed here in John chapter 20. Because the Christian God is a sending God. That is what, even, it's even before what he does. It's who he is and is therefore what he does. God sends Jesus. Jesus sends the Spirit. The Spirit sends us. This is God's plan for the ages. God's rescue plan for the world is the local church making disciples, evangelizing their communities, being sent back into the places we've been drawn out of. The movement begins in Jerusalem. It expands to Africa and Europe and Asia, to the Americas. Thanks to Elon Musk, Mars potentially eventually, the Christian God is ascending God. Now think about this for a second. It can be hard for many of us who grew up in and around the faith. Because, I mean, I mean, for me, I mean, Christianity almost feels like the backdrop, you know, of, of my childhood. But you are here today because somebody was sent to you. If, if you're a believer, you are here today because somebody was sent to you. That kind of the gospel cascade of the ages, we might say, of the Holy Spirit sending and the Holy Spirit sending and the Holy Spirit sending, it landed on you at some point in your life when someone shared the gospel with you. Every Christian is a Christian because the Holy Spirit sent somebody to them. I stand here today a Christian because of Brian and Lisa Hoffman, Michael Beeks, and Billy Wooten. The most influential people when it comes to my walk with Jesus. They were sent to me over dinner tables. They were sent to me over weekly breakfasts at Carolina Fine Foods, breakfast buffet, before school, and the millions of Bible lessons and sword drills that I did over years and years and years. And they are Christians because somebody was sent to them. I think about this often. My dad was saved at eight years old at a vacation Bible school. His family moved to South Carolina from Pennsylvania. That family invited my dad to Standing Springs Baptist Church Vacation Bible School. My parents went on a whim. My dad was saved, and I grew up at Standing Springs, having been exposed to the gospel because of what those faithful neighbors did in inviting my parents back in 1971. Every Christian is a Christian because the Spirit sent somebody to evangelize them. Every church is a church because the Holy Spirit sent somebody to plant it. Every people group is reached because the Holy Spirit sent somebody to reach it. We are here today because people were sent to us. Because Jesus breathed out his Holy Spirit on the disciples. And the Holy Spirit has been sending and sending and sending and sending ever since. And so as a church, we want to take part in this great sending. This gospel cascade of the ages. We want to play a part in this story by sending, in the small ways. We want to be about sending in the small ways, by dinner table catechism with our children. What is our only hope in life and death? That we belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul. That, that he is our redeemer, our faithful savior and Lord. By talking about those things over the dinner table, embracing our sentness there. We want to take part in this sending story with weekly Bible lessons with our preschoolers with gospel conversations and accountability time at group, application time at group, by breakfast meetups at Starbucks before we log into work over the gospel of Mark, by talking about Jesus with our neighbors, 
In the small ways, we want to embrace the ways that the Holy Spirit sends us out. But also in the big ways. By formally ordaining and commissioning one of our own to gospel ministry, like we're doing tonight. Tonight, as a church, we formally ordain Bryce Harrison for gospel ministry as he leads a team to Halifax, Nova Scotia. And what we see happening tonight, we see this as being within the continuity of this amazing story that transcends all ages, times, and places. And we ask, Holy Spirit, would you descend on Bryce and this team as they go to evangelize the people of the HRM? Now, what is ordination? What does it mean to ordain someone? Now, ordination is the formal setting apart of an individual for gospel ministry. Ordination says that as a church family and as a pastor team, we believe that the Lord has called and gifted this individual to serve in one of the two offices of the church, elder slash pastor and deacon, or deacon, I should say. Ordination includes a laying on of hands, again, representative of that sort of gospel cascade of the ages. The Holy Spirit commissioning this brother out, we see this model in Acts, in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit raises up. Some, some to be sent, and the, the Holy Spirit leads them to lay on hands and commission those to go share the gospel. We see this also referenced in 1 Timothy, about the laying on of hands being representative of the Holy Spirit's commissioning of an individual. In a few moments, we'll do that. We'll, we'll invite Bryce up. I'm going to ask him a couple of questions. I'm going to ask the church family a couple of questions, and then we will, we will pray over Bryce in the laying on of hands. Then we'll invite the rest of the team to come up after that in a moment as well. Now, I love Bryce. Even if he even if I've never stood a chance against him in any athletic event, be that basketball, spike ball, even simulated digital, digital athletic events like fantasy football, I still love Bryce. And I'll seriously, since I've had the privilege of seeing Bryce, and you have as well, I mean, Bryce has been a deep, meaningful part of this church family ever since the beginning. We've seen Bryce grow into an effective leader, an effective teacher, and a pastor. And we believe in Bryce. You believe in Bryce. You've seen him grow as well. I told him just the other day when, when he and I first met at um, Einstein, right, at the, the coffee shop at North Greenville, he was this young whippersnapper, just bustling with energy. I had no idea uh, the kind of friend that he would become and, and really the impact that he would have on the church of Greer Station, how his thumbprints really would be a part, be seen in our church family, the mark he'd leave on our church. We're grateful for his time here. We're grateful for his leadership. And he has shown himself to be worthy of admiration and celebration by, the, again, the, the elder team and the church as a whole. We believe that the Holy Spirit has empowered him and called him to this task, and we pray all the same things that Jesus prays for his disciples over Bryce, Elizabeth, and the rest of the team. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 and verse 5 say this. This is Paul the Apostle charging the young Timothy as he takes on a difficult pastorate. He says, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Paul says this to Timothy, and we say this to Bryce this evening, preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He goes on to say how rare that is actually going to be in our age. And then verse five, he ends his exhortation by saying this, as for you, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. What I love about this brief charge that Paul offers to Timothy is he, he recognizes the immense responsibility that it is to carry the mark of being called out to gospel ministry. 
And I love that he says, fulfill your ministry. And maybe this is just on my mind because you just feel like you're reading the news about people tapping out. But he says, fulfill your ministry. Run the race. Finish. Fulfill your ministry. Be obedient to the calling that the Lord has placed on you until the very end. That is our charge to you, Bryce. And that is our prayer for you as a brother and as a friend and as a church family. That you would be obedient to Paul's words here and that you would heed and obey what Paul has to say here. So we want to take part as a church in the small sinning and in the big sinning. But here's what's else. What, what's up? Here is what else we want to be about. We pray that the Holy Spirit would send more from our midst. But this would be just one of several occasions we get to do this very thing. The church is God's rescue plan for the world. God sent Jesus to die for the world. Jesus sends us to testify to Jesus' death for the world. The church testifies and embodies this good news. We believe that the church is God's rescue plan. Not the church as a vague abstraction, but the church as, a, as us, as, as me and you, ordinary disciples who live with gospel intentionality wherever the Lord puts us. And we pray that the Lord would raise up more from our midst and that we would be able to commission more out from our midst. That we would embrace our sentness here and that others would embrace the call to go elsewhere. And we pray, God, let us commission more. And we believe that when we pray that, we are praying with the grain of what God wants to do because the Christian God is ascending God. Now, in these next few moments, as I mentioned, we're going to pray. Um, I'm, I'm going to pray to conclude this time. Then after I pray, Bryce, if you'll come up. Well, we're going to do a call and response. You'll see the, the underlined portion on the screen um, that indicates church. We want you to read that portion. There'll be an underlined portion that Bryce will read as well. After that, uh, Bryce will have a seat. Uh, the elders and Bryce's dad, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Harrison, will come forward. We'll pray over Bryce, and Bill's going to share a word, uh, his own charge to his son, uh, We'll pray over Bryce, then we'll invite the rest of the team to come up, and uh, our elders will will pray over the rest of the team. Uh, Let's pray and conclude this time, and then Bryce will come up. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which gives us, which shows us Jesus' heart, for his disciples, shows Jesus' heart for us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would, we would be obedient um, to the call to send. We, we, would, we would be obedient to, to see exactly where we are as, as, as you sovereignly positioning us there. And we would, we would be obedient to embrace our sentness exactly where you have placed us. But as I mentioned a moment ago, we also pray, Jesus, that you would raise up others from our midst that we could commission out, much like we're doing with Bryce and Hannah this evening. Bryce and Elizabeth and the boys and Hannah this evening. We pray that we would be so impressed uh, that the words of what Jesus says in 17.3, about knowing you and that being eternal life, would so impress itself upon us that we would be compelled to send others more and more and more. We thank you for how meaningful Bryce has been to our church family, and we pray for many, many others like him. We pray that we would care well for him as he goes. We pray that we would care well for Hannah as they go. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just create a culture of sending and care and passions for missions here at TCGS. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.